Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. Artificial intelligence that can tell the difference between a gun and a cell phone in a grainy security video feed. Everything from the common, like a slip and fall, to the catastrophic, like a drawn gun. That can tell if someone is carrying a gun, perhaps partially concealed. Improve your risk profile with no added personnel, disruptions, or expensive system upgrades. It's technology that also learns and adapts. And it's likely to be helping human administrators watch over the safety of Peoria's human children at school. Here's a little from the meeting where Peoria Public School Board members learned more about it themselves from a representative with AI surveillance tech maker, IntelliSE. Next district uh, presentation is the IntelliSE. Uh, Mario Boone, Director of School Safety. Hello, Mr. Boone. Hello, hello. Good afternoon, or good evening, uh, President Ross, uh, members of the Board of Education, uh, and Dr. Karat. Uh, with keeping in, you know, the thoughts of Uvalde, Texas, the incidents that happened there, you know, fresh in our minds, I wanted to kind of keep with the Peoria Public School way that we do school safety, which is proactive, preventative, and progressive. Um, and I think that IntelliSE will be a very good tool for us to help uh, to keep fostering that. So uh, I would like to uh, introduce Maureen within Telesi to explain what, what this could do to help us out. Hi, I'm Maureen uh, Pajerski with Intellisi. Uh We are the manufacturer of this product. So what I wanted to do is just, I'm going to start with, a, it's a one-minute video. It's fast, but it'll tell you exactly what Intellisi does far better than I can. Risks are everywhere, including in the workplace. The average slip and fall claim is tens of thousands of dollars and can be millions if it goes to trial. And the cost of a workplace homicide can be catastrophic to your organization. Turn your passive surveillance cameras into proactive risk mitigation tools. Protecting customers, staff, and your bottom line from harm with IntelliSE's AI risk mitigation platform. Watch how quickly IntelliSE alerts to a drawn gun. Using advanced AI technology, IntelliSE autonomously monitors multiple video streams, maximizing your existing investment and adding another layer of protection to your security systems. Detect an ever-growing number of threats across the risk matrix for one flat rate. Everything from the common, like a slip and fall, to the catastrophic, like a drawn gun. IntelliSE gives you the tools to address a wide range of threats, improve your risk profile with no added personnel, disruptions, or expensive system upgrades. Instantly alert your people and systems, giving them immediate situational awareness with customizable date and time alerts, giving you the ability to act quickly and intervene before a risk escalates to an incident or before an incident becomes a tragedy. When seconds matter, choose IntelliSE, smarter surveillance for a safer world. So that gives you a really good summary of what the product is. It is a uh, risk matrix, so we are, we are trying to cover all of the issues and provide day-to-day benefit as well as the rare but awful thing like a Texas incident so that it helps for the day-to-day things that happen in a school when your buildings are open after hours, uh, when your students are going places where they shouldn't go, uh, when a slip and fall risk happens, things like that. Um, so we're saying you've already spent the money on the cameras. Uh, they're only used after the fact, so you can look and see what happened. This turns it into something that's proactive, and it'll tell you what's happening when it's happening, because it's pretty impossible for anybody to monitor cameras. 
Um, we, it is a deep learning artificial intelligence, so basically what that means is it learns and gets better with time, at kind of like a student learns, exactly the same as a person learns. Um, and then I'm just going to show some pictures. This is what comes out as an alert. This was an individual caught breaking into a construction site. Uh, this was uh, trespassers in a stadium. Again, alerting the staff right when it happens. A trespasser after hours in a school. Um, this was a student that went in after hours to work out alone in the gym, which the school did not like due to the risk of that. Um, vehicles parked where they shouldn't be, vehicles too close to your building. Um, this was an after-hours weekend roof leaking, causing a slip and fall risk, but also causing damage that got resolved quickly. Um, here's a slip risk in a school where, you know, when you drop something, you pretty much walk away, uh, get it cleaned up. Um, this was one where a bunch of students were crossing right over the slip risk and could have fallen. And, and again, the average cost of a slip and fall is 50000 or above. Um, and this is some acting and other things done in Peoria. You guys gave us some seed uh, footage, so that was a spill that we detected. Um, this is a, a fall, you know, in a hospital. Um, this is kids on the ground, so you can set the time because a lot of kids are on the ground during bus pickup and drop off. You could say, look, don't tell me when they're on the ground there. I've got enough staff there, but tell me when they're solitary workers. Kids can't get away with anything, even sliding down banisters. Uh, they get caught now. There's the acting uh, ability of a slip and fall. Uh, gun detection. Uh, so again, it's a rare event, but if it does happen, it's absolutely ca catastrophic. Um, I do always talk about false positives. You can see how that person is coming around the edge and what, what they have in their hand. Looks like it could be a rifle pointed at the ground. Um, that is something that feeds back into the system and it learns and says, okay, that wasn't a gun. Um, I tell people, hopefully and probably, you will only see false positives with guns because the likelihood of somebody holding something that looks like a gun is higher probability. Um, this was testing uh, done in your facility. You can see that it knows the difference between a cell phone and a handgun and alerts to those guns. Um, and that pretty much tells you what the system is. It's a, it's a proactive risk mitigation tool. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions from board members? Dr. Rankin. First of all, thank you for that. Um, do we currently have... Uh, Maybe it's a two-part question. Do we currently have cameras that monitor inside and outside, and are we going to use these internally and externally? Uh, we have cameras, yes, that monitor internally and externally. We plan on using these both, yeah, internally and externally. And how much of a lift is it to, to like, could we vote on this today and it's implemented tomorrow, or, like, how much of a changeover does it need to, like, start using this product? hardest part is going to be telling us which cameras you want to monitor. Um, and then you just turn it on, basically. And we just turn it on. It, we basically just need the passwords for the cameras. We attach to the same network as the cameras, and we're done. Um, and what, this might be in our board packet, but what specific schools are we focusing on for this? I don't want to give that information out um, on which oh, that makes sense. stuff will be yep. out there. So. Okay. Yeah, I just have a question. So, um, so you guys are going to go through the schools and pick the cameras that you want to have monitored. Who's going to be monitoring this? Like when you get the notification that there's a slip potential or something, who's going to be getting all those notifications? You can actually customize those. 
So if there's a slip potential, I would put your custodians or your head custodians on that, those per school. Um, any firearm incidents, I would say that our department as well as the Peoria Police Department needs to be on there to speed that response up. Okay, so depending on what they identify depends on who's going to get the, the notification that there's something Absolutely. going on. Okay, all right, thank you. It's going uh, off of uh, his yeah, going off of his question. How do they get notified? Is it like a a text? Is it okay if there's an active shooter and the um, the the IntelliSe identifies that, then a call is made to you guys. Us and Peoria Police. Okay, so that process. Then is there another process that alerts the um, other authorities? Yes. Like the, the police, the fire, the, you know. Probably the way to think about IntelliSe is you guys already have standard operating procedures for what you want to happen if there's an active shooter event. This is just going to support those existing processes and procedures. It doesn't change so it's the an way. It's an identifier then. Right, it can let you know before somebody sees it. WNBD's Will Stevenson with great reporting last week on this very story. You can find out what the progress is with the school board. Certainly check out 1470wmbd.com. Enforcing the law and perhaps changing some young hearts and minds in the process. It's a major focus right now for Peoria Police Chief Eric Echeverria. And he explained some of the profound impacts it can have toward making a safer and better tomorrow while chatting with WNBD's The Craig Collins Show last week. 1470, 100.3 WNBD, it's The Craig Collins Show. Thrilled to have you with us. Uh, Police Chief Eric Echeverria is in studio. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I think I, it was more of a photo bomb that day, right? <laughs> or a studio bomb, or a radio bomb. Right. I just jumped in. Oh, it was great, though. I, yeah. I loved it. Uh, I know that there is some big news about um, some arrests last week. I think there were six arrests made. Uh, this was because of an initiative uh, started by you, uh, the Anti-Violence Initiative. Can you talk a little bit about it and why you're seeing success? Yeah, I think this was our 15th one, if I'm correct, that we've done. And these are just directed patrols where we take... Um, where we, where we work alongside our, our state and federal partners and, mm -hmm. and our local officers who are just strictly used to focus on, you know, the, this gun crime that we're seeing. It's a, it's a yeah. gun crime initiative, if you will, right, to reduce the number of gun violence that we see. So there is an aspect to this of just being involved in the communities, correct? Uh, that's something that you've been pushing for for a while, uh, whether that involvement is positive. Uh, just coming and introducing yourself, doing the door knocking thing, uh, but being more familiar with what's going on in all the communities throughout Peoria is what gives you this insider information or gives you uh, maybe the ability for some to be more comfortable making that phone call to the police, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Um, you know, there, there's more people in the community than there are police officers, right? Yes. There's 200 officers, 100,000 plus community members, and and we need their help, quite frankly. We need their help. We need the information they have. We need them, but they see something to tell us. Okay. Uh, you did say, I think, recently that you were committed to uh, ridding the streets of illegal weapons. Yes. How do you go about something that's as challenging, I imagine, as that? Beyond just this initiative we're talking about, what are the goals to finding all of those weapons on the street and getting them off the street? Well, you know... Yeah, it's difficult. We we sure. didn't get here from one day to another, right? No. Um, prior to my arrival here, um, how many gun stores were broken into and the number of weapons that were stolen, right, that 
have made it to the streets of Peoria. And the guns that we've seen in Peoria aren't coming. You know, some people may think, oh, those are coming from the Chicago land area. They're coming from somewhere. No, they're guns that were stolen in and around our area. So, you know, obviously reminding people to lock their guns up, making sure that our gun shops are using the best security measures they can, and and they are now, um, to make sure that their weapons are locked up accurately. But, again, it's then... You know, our shot spotter, we have a shot spotter. We have, a, we have an officer that's directly assigned just the shot spotter to follow up on those calls as well. So we report, we, we report to the scene of a shot spotter, but it doesn't end there. The next day, what's the follow-up to that? Sure. There's more knocking on doors. And, and we've recovered guns, believe it or not, by just walking up to somebody's house the next day and saying, we found some evidence right outside your house here that leads us to believe that there was a shooting Somebody shot a gun off right here. Wow. And we've recovered some guns. People say, yeah, we, we did it. Here's a gun. What what happens to those individuals? Is there some version of, look, just turn in the gun and, and we're not going to go beyond this? I mean, I'm not sure that you well, can no, say that out loud like that. No, but it, it depends. It depends yeah. on, you know, did they have the gun legally? There's there's mm. some ramifications, right? But sure. what were the circumstances? And, and that's what that officer's job is to do is figure that out. What are gotcha. the circumstances? Why was a gun fired out there? Um, and more often than none, there, there's going to be some type of arrest, right? Yeah. Um, but we take into account that the person was cooperative as well. Let's, of course. Let, let's be honest. Yeah. Some violence is down uh, this summer compared to last year. The summer is usually the most difficult time of the year for people who do what you guys do. Is there anything that you can point to uh, to say why you think there does seem to be some impact on the amount of violence in our community? in the most difficult time of the year? You know, I, I think it's, I think one is, is our relationship with the community, right? We have been pushing more transparency, let's communicate. Sure. Our, our TIF 411, for example, is a, a big portion of, of how we're communicating. We didn't have a mechanism to, to, to get a tip or talk to somebody and be able to talk to them back anonymously. We do. And year to date, we've had over 360 tips just through that. Wow. Um, so that's one. Our walk and talks, the, the amount of relationships we have built through our walk and talks and uh, the ability for somebody to say, okay, the police aren't just showing up when there's a problem yeah. is another thing. They're willing to serve our community. They're willing to make a relationship yeah. with those within the community. Will Stevenson in the newsroom sitting in as well. Will, did you have a question for Eric? See, uh, hold on. Go ahead. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Thanks for taking my call, Craig. Uh, <laughs> Chief, how it, have you had to, in terms of in initiating and implementing this anti-violence initiative, have you had to change the way in order to get some of these details done and some of this other work done? Have you had to change, like, procedures or routines or how officers d- do their jobs on a regular basis in order to get the, the results that you're seeing through this? Uh, no, not necessarily. I, I think initially, I mean, the first time I walked outside and said, we're, we're going to go and have a, a walk and talk, and we went to Taft Homes was the first one, and I... Um, we did, and I and I think the officers were probably looking at me. This was last year, and saying, "What is this new chief, this crazy guy, asking <laughs> us to go knock on doors just, say just hello. out yeah. of the blue?" And, uh-huh. and what are we saying? Um, so the mindset really had to change at least a little bit for some of the officers, well, I would, right? Yeah, I, you know, I I think they want they they this was new. It's new to Peoria, yeah. right? And we revamped the flyer. Our initial flyer looks different. Again, I think it's, yes, it's a change of mindset internally, but also for the community to say, okay, there's going to be some police officers knocking on our door, but it's not for something negative. Yeah, you Does know, the public need to see see that more visually, though, as opposed to just hearing about it after the fact? 
when you mean see it, yeah, they see us when they're out when we're out. I, there. I think I mean, he's talking the about the first time yeah. I've heard of an example of well, I a guess, police I guess, officer helping get somebody to work. So to re-ask that question different way, uh, it sounds like you're doing great work. Yeah. Are we publicizing it enough? Well, here's the thing. You know, at, at what point do you now, hey, look at us. We're trying to, yes. we, we help this guy with a job. Hey, we drop some groceries off. I just think Craig that, does it all the time. I don't think lie. when you do that, it, it's, it, it oftentimes comes off unauthentic. Yeah. Right? yeah this was authentically done. Right. These officers went on their own. They did it. And then I heard about it later. I was like, great job. And and that's the part of it. It's and. Well, let me but, ask you it this way. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like there might be two battles in the world of police. Well, there's going to be more yeah. than two, but two battles in the public perception battle. There's one, the on-the-street version, and this is for any community, any, any group of people, to believe in the officers that they get to know, yeah. to have some people knock on the door, talk to their community. In that world, I don't think you want press all over the place. I don't think you want it publicized. I don't think you want it blaring from the rooftops because the community is going to start to do what you just said. They're going to start to think, Ah, wait a minute. Did they do this because they actually cared? Did they do this because right. they're getting that little extra set of attention? The other battle is the one that's more macro. It's the one we're having all over the country. It's the vilifying of police and finding a way to counteract that. I always say this about my own self. Uh, my family are all Marines, and, and uh, they absolutely believe in, and every single day we support the police in every community we're in. But when I was a little kid, I was in a situation uh, where police needed to be involved. And I remember to this day, one of the things police did that made me feel good, made me in that moment feel comfortable and happy, they let me switch the siren on and off as I was riding in a police car as much as I wanted to. They did, I, was, I was like seven years old. And they're like, nah, man, just go crazy. So every few seconds, I just yeah. switch it on and like someone would freak out and they would let me laugh at it. That's not going to get annoying at all. No, it'll be fine. I mean, well, actually, some of the cars that we passed by, and this didn't happen in this state, by the way, so no one has to worry about it. Uh, they would look and see like a little kid doing it and they'd start to smile and laugh, too. And there was sure. that moment of and from that moment on instilled in me personally was an inherent trust in the police and a, and a knowing of how good people can be who do what you do every day. And I think that's the battle that probably matters, the one where you convince the, the community, convince the individual that we're not here as that bad guy that you're hearing about some politicians talk about on TV. Yeah. But, you know, y yes, I agree with that. But I think the, the flip side that you're missing in that is, as well is we have a lot of our children that are growing up in this violent in, in, yeah. in, in this violence that that's all what they see and so when we respond to their homes or we respond to something yes they're seeing us as the police in that moment maybe sometimes handcuffing a family member taking somebody to jail and and, and that's what they're seeing right so we we need to get to them earlier but there needs to be things that are are in place for families resources for families and resources for our community to help them interrupt the violence before it happens, right? Sure. We want to be there before violence happens. And oftentimes, we find ourselves in a position there when violence is occurring. Yes, right. So having involvement at other times is so profound. We've already heard from public health and safety officials, doctors, others. If you thought the issue with opioids was gone or a thing of the past, best think again. While multi-million dollar settlements are being reached and big legal cases pitting communities across America against big pharma, big pharma losing in plenty of cases, opioid overdose deaths still went up in Illinois, according to the latest data available, as much as 33%. Governor J.B. Pritzker joined a group of state officials to explain his efforts to try and help this past week. Good morning, everyone. 
I'm here today with Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, with Attorney General Kwame Raoul, Department of Human Services Secretary Grace Ho, uh, and others to announce the next steps in Illinois' efforts to support people who have opioid use disorder and to uplift their loved ones. Uh, we're joined by our partners in the General Assembly, uh, Representatives Camille Lilly, Deb Conroy, and LaShawn Ford, and leaders in the field, as well as Anthony Allen, courageously here to share his own story, uh, one that is uh, familiar to far too many Illinois families. The opioid crisis will go down as one of the most disturbing examples of corporate greed and medical mismanagement in human history, uh, giving way to an epidemic that has become more deadly almost every year of the last 40 years. This has disproportionately impacted communities of color, which have experienced some of the highest rates of overdose deaths in the state. As this emergency has stolen the lives of thousands of residents, the state of Illinois has been a national leader in fighting back. I want to recognize the role of Attorney General Kwame Raoul in shaping this legacy of leadership, working to ensure justice for Illinoisans from Cairo to Danville to Rockford to Chicago. Illinois residents will be safer and healthier thanks to the strong commitment and painstaking work of the Attorney General and his team. After years of litigation, including more than 4,000 lawsuits filed by state and local government officials, including by our Attorney General, accountability is finally arriving. Today, we join together to announce the framework through which our state's residents will see the benefits of Illinois' opioid litigation, which could total as much as $760 million over the next 18 years. Countless hours have been dedicated to listening to the needs of municipalities, people in recovery, families that have lost their loved ones to overdose, and those currently struggling with opioid use disorder up and down the state of Illinois. That work ensures that these funds truly address the best interventions, prevention, and remediation for the communities hurt by these harms. Over the last three years, I've sought to bring new scale to the fight against the opioid crisis. I've made it so that clinics and hospitals can now receive no-cost naloxone through our Access Narcan project, ensuring that at-risk patients can have the supplies right as they leave the healthcare system. Uh, Community-based partners, including police, sheriffs, firefighters and harm reduction organizations also have access to naloxone through this project to enable them to save more lives across Illinois. Overdose education and naloxone distribution services have been expanded, delivering more than 65,000 kits in FY 2021 and over 97,000 kits in FY 2022. More people have access to recovery homes so people can have safe, stable places to live in the early stages of their journey. 
And our 24-7 Illinois Helpline continues to connect patients to emergency response, interventions, treatment, and recovery services. In addition, earlier this year, I announced the State of Illinois Overdose Action Plan to bring all that work together under one umbrella, furthering our mission with an even greater commitment to bring recovery to every community. From the settlement funds, uh, those funds that we are announcing today will advance that plan to its fullest extent, leaving no stone unturned as we work to bring the opioid epidemic to an end. In a few moments, I'll sign an executive order ensuring that dollars go exactly where they should. Thank you very much, everyone, for being here and joining us. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to the chair of the Governor's Opioid Overdose Prevention and Recovery Steering Committee and a true force of nature for equity in all that we do, Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton. Juliana? Thank you, Governor. <laughs> right. Hello, everyone. I am Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, and I use she, her pronouns. Thank you, Governor Pritzker, for that warm introduction and for your commitment to protecting our most vulnerable through compassionate policymaking. I would also like to thank everyone joining us who is facing the opioid crisis head on, including Attorney General Kwame Raoul, who has fought for Illinois communities harmed by this epidemic, Department of Human Services Secretary Grace Ho, who also co-chairs the Governor's Opioid Overdose Prevention and Recovering Steering Committee, all of our partners in the Illinois General Assembly, leaders, stakeholders, and advocates, all working to ensure there is access to resources and the tools so badly needed to save lives and help keep people safe. We are here today because members of our Illinois family are hurting across this state. Every city, town, and village has someone right now hurting because of the opioid crisis. This hurt has many forms, from chronic addiction to the stress of finding support to break the hold and remain on the road to recovery, to accessing services to heal the harm that families and friends feel because of their loved one's addiction. Illinois has gone far in our efforts to address the opioid crisis, not only because we recognize that all must stand up and act, but also because every voice impacted by the injustice and devastation it has caused deserves to be heard and supported. When we talk about harm reduction, we're really talking about a comprehensive response that equitably addresses the diverse needs of communities hurt by opioids. As chair, co-chair of the Governor's Opioid Overdose Prevention and Recovery Steering Committee, I've seen just how widespread the harm is as well as how deeply it has touched our most vulnerable. Opioid drug overdoses have become the leading cause of death nationwide for people under the age of 50. This crisis has reached into urban, suburban, and rural areas, every kind of community. It's also true that opioids have disproportionately hurt BIPOC communities. In fact, in Illinois alone, the opioid fatality rate for black communities was 55.3 per 100,000, and that is the highest of all demographics. And it lays bare the deep inequities at the heart of this unspeakable amount of pain and trauma. We are here today because we will heal 
and we'll do it by joining forces and working with the communities impacted to make the needed changes. As the governor said, the funds from the National Opioid Settlement Agreement coming to our state will support our efforts to build on the meaningful initiatives that we already have underway. I'm proud of the work of the steering committee and the Illinois Opioid Crisis Response Advisory Council in creating the State Overdose Action Plan. Alongside guidance from top agency leadership, community advocates, and elected leaders, the wisdom of members with lived experience helped craft the 25 priorities outlined in the plan. These priorities are centered on equity and addressing the systemic factors that lead to the addiction and overdose, and the executive order signed by the governor today will take us further in that mission. We are laser focused on the roots of the issue while still remaining steadfast in our response to the immediate needs brought on by the opioid epidemic, from access to life-saving medication to resources for recovery. There certainly is more work to do, and I'm honored to be in this space with so many who are ready to dig in. We have a pathway to safer, healthier Illinois, and we're taking everyone with us. There's a newer effort on the lighter side from Helping Hands and Hearts in Peoria for those still struggling in war-torn Ukraine as Russia's bloody invasion there continues. Locals here at home helping send ambulances fully stocked with supplies to those in need overseas. OSF Healthcare Vice President Chris Manson told us about it on WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show last week. Going back a, a ways, May 4th, we met this man in our studio for the first time. Vice President of Government Relations at OSF is Chris Manson. Hi, Chris. How you doing? Good, man. When we first met you, you were on the beginning stages of this adventure of getting ambulances donated and then shipped to and delivered to the folks of Ukraine. Take me back to how that started, first of all, and then we're going to update people what you've just done. Okay. Well, so back in March, uh, as the war was just unfolding, um, you know, watching the news with my daughter, She's seeing what's going on. I'm watching it, trying to turn the channel quickly so she doesn't see certain things that might upset her. Sure. And, um, you know, she just looks at me, and you can just tell she's upset by what she's seeing. And she starts asking, is there anything that we can do to help? And, you know, she wants to say a few prayers here and there. And, you know, it just got me thinking. And um, basically at one point came to the, the, the idea, or the crazy idea, of, well, maybe, you know, I work in healthcare. Um, I used to be a firefighter. Um, you know, maybe maybe they need ambulances and they need medical supplies. So I reached out to the Ukrainian government, to the consulate in Chicago, checked in with them, said, hey, if I got you an ambulance full of supplies, would that be helpful? Um, they got back to me right away and said, absolutely. So I realized maybe I was just, I just put myself on the hook to get an ambulance full of supplies. <laughs> and, um, you know, one thing led to another. Um, talked to some people here in Peoria. Um, luckily, uh, you know, I got AMT of Central Illinois, the ambulance company here, Andrew Rand. I reached out to him, um, and I also reached out to my employer at OSF and just said, hey, you know, Andrew, can you give, you know, can we get an ambulance? This is the idea. I know it's crazy. You know, he responds by saying, <laughs> doesn't say, well, what are you talking about? Or, you know, this right. is crazy. He says, you want, what do you need, gas or diesel? So I had an ambulance. That I, sounds like Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, it was amazing. It was, a, you know, I'd interacted with him occasionally before, but you know, not nothing substantial, and just what a great way to to really meet somebody to say, hey, can you give me a, you know, an ambulance that I want to send to Ukraine, and to have them just respond right away, absolutely. Um, and then OSF, the same thing. You know, I go to OSF Healthcare, and I'm like, hey, 
to my boss and say, you know, I got this ambulance. We'd love to fill it with some uh, medical supplies and we'd love to get our mission partners or our employees to fill it up with other supplies. Would that be, you know, would you be comfortable with me doing that and maybe doing a little bit of work on that? And they said, absolutely. They said, you know, we're we're a Catholic health system. If you're feeling this calling to help, we want to help you out. Good. And that got me started. So uh, we're going to skip some stuff. You 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 got those delivered. Then yep. there's some other ones that got delivered. But you just recently, uh, for your second time, right? Yes. Went and delivered uh, some more ambulances. So how many are we up to? And how many did you just deliver this time? So right now we have seven in country, seven okay. in Ukraine. Um, I just got back from Ukraine a couple weeks back. We had delivered uh, ambulances number six and seven. Um, one of the ambulances was from El Paso, Illinois, so a local ambulance, and one from Ohio. Um, we Those two were the first two that we put on a ship, so they landed in Hamburg. Um, they were then driven through Germany um, and then into Poland. I met up with them in Poland, and um, I drove the El Paso ambulance while someone else drove the Ohio ambulance all the way into uh, Kiev. Wow. So about, um, I don't know, kilometers, maybe 1,000 kilometers. It was like a 10-hour drive or something. Now, so. that... I mean, it is an advanced economy, but do they really need ambulances? Oh, you know, it's funny. Um, when you when you look at what they're operating under, well, let me back up. Just because of the war alone, they're losing about seven ambulances a day. So not to mention a good number of their ambulances are in occupied parts of Ukraine. So the okay. Russian government has occupied it. The Russian government either occupied a good chunk of property of Ukraine or it's destroyed a good chunk of property. And in doing that, has destroyed um, you know over I think it's like 150 or, or more ambulances, um, up to a certain I think it was like up, up to like the end of May they had d- destroyed over 150 or so ambulances, but just with the continued bombardment, the constant conflict, um, they the Ukrainians do lose about seven ambulances a day. Wow! So uh, when we delivered these two, <clears throat> you know my my concern or question was, <clears throat> are these ambulances going to be too big? Do they you know will they work? Um, you know, European streets tend to be narrower. You know, is there a oh, good, yeah, is there a good, f- is there a good fit? You know, between these ambulances and what they need, um, I can tell you now firsthand. I've driven them, so yeah, they'll they'll make the streets. It's a little bit close sometimes, um, but they also are just the Ukrainian officials that receive these ambulances from the Ministry of Health. They were blown away by the technology that's in them. When you really the Ukrainian um, emergency medical system. Um, it is much different than ours, and it's maybe more uh, say it's more rudimentary. Those ambulances that they that they're used to driving just don't have the kind of stuff that we have them, the advanced life saving stuff that we have in them. So for us to go ahead and just the size alone. So for us, for example, the two that we delivered and the other five, the, the seven that are there, they're able to go ahead and use those at a forward collection point. So you know you're wounded, you've you know been in combat, you've been injured. You're taken to like a battalion aid station or something, maybe a few miles away. You know, maybe you get there in a pickup truck or a car or something. Somehow you get to that aid station, and it's from that aid station where you're stabilized. You know, your bleeding stopped or whatever, and then they put you on those ambulances. The good thing about our ambulances, the size of them and the the materials that they have in them, they then can continue life saving care while they move you to a higher level of care, a, a, a hospital with a um, that can handle your injuries, and they can transport multiple patients. So the way our rigs are set up in America, you've usually you've got the gurney, you've got a bench. So right there, there's two there's two spaces for two um, prone or laid out injured persons that are critically injured. Sure. Plus, you can put in a few walking wounded in a couple of the jump seats, 
and then you can have a medic treating people. You got some space to treat some people. So again, if someone starts, you know, coding or bleeding out or something, they can do stuff. So, so they really covet those. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, they they were looking at, uh, you know, I had people, I had adult Ukrainian adults crying because they were so excited to see those ambulances. I've got letters, in fact. Um, now that I've made several connections with people and after the second trip, I've got letters from um, colonels, from um, commanders of units saying, hey, we need an ambulance. Can you get us an ambulance? I've got hospitals. I've got children's hospitals saying, hey, can you get us an ambulance? So um, they absolutely covet them. They need them. And we took care of that issue. Um, we got into Poland. We got across the border. Um, and then from, you know, uh, going once we got into uh, to Ukraine, actually, once we got into Ukraine, it was pretty easy. The only thing we had to worry about was not being out past curfew. Um, we had to go through various, you know, armed checkpoints. Um, luckily, the person I was driving with spoke Ukrainian, and we had I had paperwork saying that, you know, this is what we were doing. Um, I think probably my biggest fear was in certain parts of the country where we were driving um, after dark, I didn't want to be mistaken at, you know, these were American vehicles. They didn't look like anything Ukrainian. I didn't want some, um, you know, nervous uh, guard somewhere um, thinking that we were somehow the Russians, you know, doing something from maybe Belarus or something. Sure. So we were trying to, like, let people know ahead of time and make sure that we tried to minimize how often we were driving at dark or, you know, past dark. Did you have, so did you have uh, military people with you? I'm confused by this. So, so I mean, oh, here's a, very, uh, a more pointed question. Did you guys have guns? No, no, we 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 okay. did not. I mean, where we were at, we were, yeah. The new ambulances have guns. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, we, you know, no. in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you're you're yeah. you're a dude from Peoria, right? right. And yeah. You work in government relations. You're not a military guy. Yeah. And so I, I'm sitting here in this conversation, and you're four feet from me. I'm nervous for you. <laughs> and so how how did how did that part get handled? I, well, I, I will tell you, I stopped in one place, and again, I'd been there before, and I had some friends in Ukraine, and um, I, I did have someone give me a, a ballistic vest, so I had a vest. Okay, that's um, good. But again, you know, the big thing was I didn't want to be moving at night because, again, you could have yeah, a letter, yeah. but if someone mistakes you and they start shooting you, yeah. then, you know, we'll I, I have it. I would love to think that the letter literally said... To whom it may concern, we are the good guys. Yeah. Thank you. And, and that's good, all. That's it's and big it's got a little good guy logo. Yeah, good guy logo. Can you hang tight a second? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, cool for on you for doing all this and all the crew that's helping you do it. I know you can't do it by yourself. So yeah, a, lot a lot of people, people helping. A lot of people. Uh, keep us posted. Uh, best of luck. Be safe. All those things. I'll be your dad for a minute. I'm, I'm, I'll be nervous <laughs> the next time you say you're going again. But uh, let us know what's going on. And uh, uh, thanks for doing it, man. No, it's doing. been a, been a pleasure. Thanks. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. For instant news, 24-7, follow us at 1470 WNBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1470WNBD.com. I'm Cooper Banks, WNBD News.